All right, so this morning, uh, we're going to be back in James chapter 1, and uh, we're going to look at verses 12 through 15. So if you're using the Bibles in here, um, it's page 658 and 659 in your Bible. And um, the title of the message is The Blame Game. The Blame Game. So James chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. Uh, before I get into the study, let me open up in a word of prayer. And then we'll look at the word together. Well, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this morning. And we thank you so much for your word, Lord. That you speak to us through your word. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would fill this place. Lord, it would fill me, Lord. That your word would come forth with power, with authority. That it would change our hearts. That you would speak to us. Lord, we pray that whatever's on our minds right now, whatever's on our hearts right now, Lord, that we would just lay it at your feet. That we would focus on you right now. We thank you for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to be here in your midst, Lord, to worship you and to hear from you. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So how many of us have played the blame game before? And I see my sister right here in the audience, and, and we played the blame game a lot growing up. Not the name game, but the blame game. Now I was reading a story the other day about a woman. Her name was Martha. And um, Martha was about to have her second cup of coffee. It was morning coffee, and this was unusual for her because Martha only had one cup of coffee. And before she reached for that second cup of coffee, uh, she decided to wash a dish that she had used earlier that morning. So she put some soap on it, she rinsed it with water, and you know she got soap and water on her hands. So as she reached for that cup of coffee, it slipped out of her hand and it fell straight to the floor. It shattered into a thousand pieces, that is the coffee mug did, and the coffee splashed all over her white pants, so clearly it was before Labor Day. And she shouted, this is your fault, Steve. You see, Steve was Martha's husband, and Steve had come home very late the night before. He had to work late. So she blamed Steve. Because Steve got home late, she stayed up late and needed that second cup of coffee, which was unusual for her. So when she blamed Steve, her husband, Steve then blamed his boss. So what we see is this chain of blame. Martha blamed Steve. Steve blamed his mean old boss. And I'm pretty sure his boss would blame the CEO or the president of the company. So what we see, once again, is this chain of blame. And... I think, personally, it was the water and the soap's fault, but, you know, it doesn't really matter. What we see is that nobody took responsibility for what had happened that morning. And I think sometimes as Christians, as believers, as followers of Jesus Christ, we too play the blame game when we find ourselves in sin. We blame God. We say, oh, it's God's fault. You know, he tempted me. He put me in this situation. You know, we blame our circumstances. Oh, well, it runs in the family. You know, it's, it's my mom's fault. It's my dad's fault. It's his fault. It's her fault. We never take responsibility for our sinful actions, right? And the last time I uh, was up here, uh, we looked at the first four verses of James chapter 1. And what we learned is that trials, we talked about trials, and specifically we talked about trials that God allows into our lives to shape us and to mold us into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And today, our shift will focus to trials and temptations that are evil, they're sinful. 
And we're going to learn today that those things do not originate from God. They come from our own fleshly desires. They come from the enemy, Satan. They come from the world around us. And we'll talk about that in the next few verses here. Um, But before I do that, let me begin reading in the first verse of James chapter 1. And then we'll focus in on verses 12 through 15. So here James writes, James chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, it says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes dispersed abroad, greetings. Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without doubting. For the doubter is like the surging sea, excuse me, driven and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded and unstable in all his ways. Let the brother of humble circumstances boast in his exaltation, but let the rich boast in his humiliation because he will pass away like a flower of the field. For the sun rises and together with a scorching wind dries up the grass. Its flower falls off and its beautiful appearance perishes. In the same way, the rich person will wither away while pursuing his activities. So then here is our focus this morning, beginning in verse 12. It says, Blessed is the one who endures trials, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. No one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God, since God is not tempted by evil. And he himself doesn't tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. All right, so what we see here, uh, beginning in verse 12, it says, actually in verse 12, um, What we're going to focus on is trials with a benefit and a purpose. Trials with a benefit and a purpose. So here in verse 12, uh, James writes, Blessed is the one who endures trials, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. So that word trials there in verse 12, in the original Greek language is the word pyrosmos, pyrosmos. And that is the same word that is used in verse 2, speaking of the various trials that we will fall into as believers. Remember, James tells us to count it all joy when we fall into various trials. So that is the same word that is used here in verse 12 that is used in verse 2. So once again, these are the trials that produce endurance in our life. Now, remember the last time we talked about the fact that trials don't produce our faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So our faith comes 
from the word of God, not from the trials. The trials test our faith and they produce endurance in our lives, slowly perfecting us and allowing us to look more and more like Jesus in terms of his character. So that's why when we go through these trials that God allows into our lives, um, we should count it all joy because it's making us look more and more um, like Jesus Christ as we go through them. And last time I talked about this, I talked about my own experience going through trials. And sometimes we start to think like kindergartners, that kindergarten theology where we say to ourselves, if I'm good, I'm going to be rewarded. But if I'm bad, I'm going to be punished. So when God allows trials into our lives, sometimes we think to ourselves, you know, Lord, I'm, I'm serving you. I'm living for you. I love you. Why are you doing this to me? Why me, Lord? Why have you allowed this difficulty into my life? For example, this morning, my car wouldn't start. I, I had to borrow my dad's truck to get here. The battery died. So I'm like, Lord, what are you doing? I have to go teach your word. Why did you allow this to come into my life? And, you know, quickly realized you just have to calm down and the Lord will get you there if he wants you to be there. And here I am bringing forth the word. And these are things that we just have to trust in the Lord. We don't want to question. We don't want to ponder. We don't want to waste any time understanding why the Lord has allowed something into our lives because we're never going to find out the answer. Only the Lord knows and he knows what's best for us. And it's inevitable as Christians, right? All of us are going to find trials and difficulties in this life. We talked about a drive through window the last time. We're either going into a trial, we're in the middle of a trial, or we're leaving a trial. And in fact, Jesus tells us in John chapter 16, verse 33, he says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. You will have suffering in this world. Be courageous. I have conquered the world. And he certainly has. He has conquered sin. The wages of sin is death. And because of that, in Christ, we have a hope, we have a future, we have a lot to look forward to. So these difficulties that we face that the Lord allows into our lives to shape us and to mold us are only temporary. Because I can tell you that battery is going to get fixed tomorrow. So it's a very temporary thing as we go through these trials. So notice here, as we read this, the question then becomes, what am I going to do in the midst of this trial that the Lord has allowed me to go through? Am I going to be faithful? Am I going to be approved? Am I going to pass the test? Or am I going to fold? So notice here that James talks about a crown. He talks about the crown of life. He says, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. So what is this crown? Is this some sort of reward? Yes, it is, actually. In the Bible, in addition to here in James chapter 1, there are four additional citations that talk about crowns or rewards that a believer can receive, or a Christian or a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, remember, as Christians salvation, um, everlasting life is not attained through works. Works are not going to save you. Only 
faith in Jesus Christ is going to save you. And in fact, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 9, uh, Paul tells us, For you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. So once again, works do not save us, but rather faith in Christ does. Once again, that gospel message, number one, that Jesus died for your sins. Number two, that he was buried. Number three, that Jesus rose from the dead on the third day. You put your faith in that message. You recognize you are a sinner. You repent of your sin. That's what makes you righteous in the sight of God. The good works that we perform are just a result of being in Christ. So beyond salvation, there is going to be heavenly rewards. And as I mentioned, the Bible cites four other crowns or rewards, which is a total of five that the believer can receive in heaven. So I'm going to list them for you here. And if you don't get all of them, you can see me after service and I can uh, give them to you. So the first time we hear or we read about a reward or a crown is in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 2 through 4. So 1 Peter 5, 2 through 4, and this is the crown of glory. And this is given to a person who is in some position of oversight here on this earth. Once again, that's the crown of glory. Uh, second, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 25, 1 Corinthians 9, 25, you have the imperishable crown, imperishable crown. And that's for running God's race with endurance. And um, Pastor Angel spoke of this a few weeks ago in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. The third uh, rewarding crown that we read about in Scripture is in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8. This is the crown of righteousness. And this is all looking for and loving His, speaking of the Lord's appearing. The crown of righteousness, once again, all looking for and loving His, speaking of the Lord's appearing. And then the fourth crown or um, reward that we see is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 19. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 19. This is the crown of rejoicing. The crown of rejoicing. This is the soul winning crown. Soul winning crown. And then lastly, here in James chapter 1, here in verse 12, we have the crown of life. James chapter 1, verse 12, once again, the crown of life. And this is for faithful endurance, enduring trials. And when you think about this, these heavenly rewards, then what should be understood and what should be suggested is that there's going to be some sort of judgment. And as believers we are going to be judged as well as non-believers. Everybody on the face of this planet is going to face judgment. And in fact, the author of Hebrews tells us this in Hebrews 9 verse 27. He writes, And just as it is appointed for people to die once, and after this, the judgment. So whether you are in Christ, you are a believer of Jesus Christ, you're a Christian, or you're not in Christ, everyone is going to face judgment judgment however for the believer 
we are going to face what is called the judgment seat or the bema seat of Christ. And the Apostle Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 14, verses 10 through 2. Here he writes, But you, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or you, why do you despise your brother or sister? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow to me and every tongue will give praise to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. So once again, as believers, we're not going to be judged. Once again, we're not going to be judged for our sins or for salvation. That was taken care of at the cross when we gave our lives to Jesus. But rather, we're going to be judged for our service and our faithfulness unto the Lord. And in fact, Pastor Angel spoke of this a few weeks ago in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. So if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 11 through 15, here Paul writes, For no one can lay any other foundation than what has been laid down. That foundation is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become obvious, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. Speaking of judgment there, the fire will test the quality of each one's work. If anyone's work that he has built survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will experience loss, but he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So once again, as believers, as we face the judgment seat of Christ, we're not going to be judged for our sins or for salvation, but rather for our service, what we did for the Lord when we we're here on this earth in Christ. However, for the non-believer, those that do not know the Lord or have rejected Jesus Christ, they're going to face what is called the great white throne judgment. And this is the judgment onto damnation. These people, once again, those who have rejected the Lord that are not in the Lord will be thrown into the lake of fire. And you can read more about that in the book of Revelation, chapter 20, uh, verses 11 through 15. So, as we face trials, the trials that the Lord has allowed into our lives to make us look more like Jesus, we want to remain faithful even when we don't understand what he's doing. We're not to question the Lord. We need to keep our eyes on the Lord. That way we are found approved and we can be rewarded for our faithfulness in that time. Now, as we move on to verse 13, there's going to be a shift. So we've been talking about trials that produce endurance in our lives, trials that the Lord has allowed. And in verse 13, we're going to be talking about trials and temptations that are evil or sinful. So verse 13, evil, sinful trials and temptations. So here James writes, No one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God, since God is not tempted by evil, and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. So notice here in this verse, in the first 
the second and the fourth phrases where it says, No one undergoing a trial should say that I am being tempted by God and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. The word trial, tempted, and tempt are all the same Greek word, which is pyrazo. Pyrazo, and that means to test. So in studying this verse, what is suggested here is that God doesn't test or tempt us with evil or sinful trials or temptations. And in just a minute, when we get into verse 14 and 15, we'll talk about where evil trials and temptations come from. But if you look at the third phrase in verse 13, where it says, Since God is not tempted by evil, the word tempted there is in a different form of the Greek, which is apirastos, apirastos, which means not temptable. So God is not tried or tempted by evil is what it is saying there. And in fact, we have a great example of this in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4. Remember there, Jesus had just been baptized in the Jordan by John the Baptist. The Holy Spirit had descended on him, and God the Father acknowledges his son Jesus from heaven. And then the Word of God tells us, here in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, Then Jesus left the Jordan, full of the Holy Spirit, and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and when they were over, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. But Jesus answered him, It is written, Man uh, must not live on bread alone. So he took him up, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. The devil said to him, I will give you their splendor and all this authority because it has been given over to me, and I can give it to anyone I want. If you then will worship me, all will be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Verse 9 it says, So he took him to Jerusalem had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will give his angels orders concerning you to protect you, and they will support you with their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, Do not test the Lord your God. After the devil had finished every temptation, he departed from him, for a time. So here we see that Jesus was tempted by the enemy Satan for 40 days on the pride of life, the lust of flesh, the lust of the flesh and the eyes, but by the power of the Holy Spirit who was able to escape the tactics of the enemy. The Lord was not temptable. And you'll notice that the Lord also always answered with the word of God. He'd always say, "For it is written, it has been said, but also what we see here is that even Satan himself knew scripture. But despite that, the Lord was able to escape without sin. Now, when evil trials and temptations come into our lives, as I said before, the word of God tells us that they don't come from God, but rather they come from what is said in verse 14 and 15. So this is where sinful 
evil trials or temptations come from. In verses 14 and 15, James writes, But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. So as believers, remember, we talk about this all the time. We're not going to be sinless, right? Every single day, we're going to fall short of God's glory. But we should have a desire to sinless. And in order for that to happen, we need to guard our hearts. We need to guard our minds. Because that's where the battle begins. It starts in your mind. And if you, if you allow a thought to fester there long enough, it eventually makes its way into your heart. And it can become an action in your life. So the desire to sin, once again, comes from our own fleshly desires. It also comes from Satan, the enemy, and even from the world around us. So we have to be very careful. And um, I remember when I lived in Colorado, um, I had the, the privilege of knowing an ex-police um, chief. And we were talking, and he, um, he shared with me this nice analogy. He compared a crime to a sinful action. And he said whenever a crime was committed, there was always two elements to the crime. There was an opportunity, and there was a desire. So think about a criminal. If he has the desire to steal... And let's say there's an opportunity. There's a car in front of him with an open window with a purse inside. If those two come together, the desire and the opportunity, then the crime will be committed. And likewise, sin in our lives as, as believers, as followers of Jesus Christ, I mean, we're still in the flesh. We're still going to have those sinful desires. And if there's an opportunity for that desire to turn, turn into a sinful action, then we're going to have sin in our life. So what is easier to remove, the opportunity or the desire? I think it's the opportunity. It's easier to remove the opportunity to sin than the actual desire to sin, because once again, we're still in the flesh. So if you know that certain places, groups of people, um, certain circumstances are going to allow your desires to manifest or turn into a sinful action, you need to remove yourself from those situations. And I know that's so much easier said than done because I've often found myself in situations where those desires to sin can turn into an action. We have to be very careful uh, to guard our hearts, to guard our minds. And I think in order for that to really happen, um, we need to have a healthy fear of the Lord and not necessarily a fear that he's gonna strike us down with lightning. He can do that though. I'm not saying that he couldn't, uh, but rather a healthy fear where you love him enough, where you don't want to disappoint the Lord. And I think this is what would lead to true repentance in our lives. To remove those opportunities, to make those desires turn into an action. And also just having that knowledge that he could come back at any moment, that imminent return of the Lord. He could come back right now. He could come back tomorrow. I think that allows us to have that healthy fear of him and allows us to be wise with the things that we do on a day-to-day -day basis. So we have to remove ourselves from those opportunities to sin because we're still in the flesh. And instead of playing the blame game as to why we're sinning, I love what Paul tells us in Romans chapter 13, verse 14. He says, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ 
I make no plans to satisfy the fleshly desires. I also believe that as Christians, it's also extremely important to be mindful of others, to be mindful of the people around us. You know, Pastor Angel spoke of this a few weeks ago in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. If you remember there in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, uh, there was a group of Corinthian believers in the Corinthian church. They were buying meat at the markets that was being sacrificed to idols. Now, these Christians, these followers of the Lord, they're at Corinth. They knew that idols were nothing. So eating meat that was sacrificed to idols didn't mean anything to them. They were just eating the meat. But unfortunately, it was causing some issues, particularly for younger believers in the faith who didn't have that knowledge quite yet, that idols were nothing. They were a shadow in the presence of the Lord. So this was potentially causing them to stumble. And sometimes as Christians, it's best not to exercise those Christian liberties in order to keep a brother or a sister in Christ from stumbling or falling into sin or falling into temptation. And, you know, sometimes we get a little bit selfish. We say to ourselves, well, you know what? I have the right to listen to that music. I have the right to go to that place or this place. But sometimes not everything is beneficial to us. You know, maybe not listening to Luther Vandross is, is a good idea. Who knows? Maybe somebody used to get high listening to Luther Vandross. I mean, we don't know. We just have to be mindful of the people around us, our brothers and sisters in Christ. And... We need to be other-centered, and this is a very difficult thing. We need to esteem everyone else greater than ourselves. When the world tells us we have to esteem ourselves greater than everyone else, the Lord tells us we need to esteem others greater than ourselves. Because it's not about us, it's not about anything, but it's about Jesus. And we have to understand that. And just as Jesus was able to escape the tactics of the enemy, we too should have that desire. And in fact, in James chapter 4, verse 7, James tells us, Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. But notice here that there's an order to this. First, you need to submit to God, then you can resist the devil, and then the devil will flee from you. We can't resist the devil first and then submit to God because that's not going to work. You have to submit to God first, and then you can resist the devil and then the devil can flee from us. So in closing this morning, there are four things I want us to remember that will allow us to submit to God. Number one, we have his word, the word of God. And once again, when you think about the word of God, the word of God is what produces our faith. Our faith comes from the word of God. Once again, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 10, verse 17, So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. All of his promises, all of the things that he has yet to do, what he has already done are in the word. The word of God is a reflection of who God is, often referred to as the mirror of God's word. And a little bit later, Pastor Angel will get there. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the word of God tells us that we see him now in a dim image. We don't see the Lord face-to-face, as clearly as we will in the future. But every time we get into the Word of God, we see the Lord a little bit more clearly than we did before. 
So that should give us a desire to get into his word. And the word of God gives us peace in our darkest hour. God's word will always have something for us. Whether you're going through a divorce, whether you're facing temptations, whether you're facing trials, trials that the Lord has allowed into your life, um, whether you're joyful, whatever you're going through in life, the word of God will always have something for you. It will never come up void. And we need to know the word of God intimately. Uh, Secondly, we have the power in the person of the Holy Spirit. The power in the person of the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul tells us that we need to be careful. We need to walk carefully. Redeeming the time, making the most of every moment, moment we have because the days are evil. He says not to be drunk with wine in which there is dissipation, but to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So, In other words, we don't want to be under the influence of anything else other than the power and the person of the Holy Spirit. And we see this, actually we saw this, we read about this in the life of Jesus, for example, in Luke chapter 4. Right? He was filled with the Holy Spirit. He was led into the wilderness. He was tempted, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, he was able to escape the tactics of the enemy and make his way back to Galilee. And the same Holy Spirit that lived in Jesus then is the same Holy Spirit that's on this earth and living in believers now. The same Spirit we have complete access to. So we have no excuse. We have the power in the person of the Holy Spirit to shape us and to mold us. We just need to ask the Lord to fill us afresh daily uh, with His Holy Spirit. Thirdly, we have prayer. This is our communication with the Lord. I believe this is a tool I know in my life and in the life of many believers a tool that is not utilized enough. And prayer is our dependence on the Father. It's our dependence on the Lord. And sometimes we think to ourselves that our prayers are insignificant. Like the Lord doesn't hear us. They're, they're short. They're little. Oh, the Lord's not going to hear my prayer. But I always think about Peter, for example. Um, in Matthew chapter 14, Remember Peter, the disciples, they were on this boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee and a big storm came and there was big waves and Jesus comes to them on the water. They think he's a ghost and Jesus, the Lord, calls upon Peter to walk on the water and then Peter gets distracted by the waves. He takes his eyes off of Jesus and he begins to sink and what he does is he yells, save me, Lord, save me, Lord, those three words and the Lord saved him from drowning. So no prayer is insignificant. Obviously it has to be in accordance to his will, but the Lord hears us. He knows our needs before we even bring them to him. And when you think about prayer, man, you can pray anywhere. You know, Daniel prayed from the lion's den. Jonah prayed from the belly of a very large fish. And of course here, Peter, as I was sharing with you, he prayed drowning in the Sea of Galilee. And the Lord heard these individuals. He'll hear you as well. Fourthly, and lastly, we have fellowship. And I think this is very important. Fellowship with other believers. We need to encourage one another. We need to be a blessing to one another because we're all running this race together. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4, uh, Paul reminds us that when we go through trials, we go through difficulties, different circumstances in life, uh, the same comfort that the Lord gives us We can give to another person when they go through a similar circumstance, a similar trial. 
And that's a blessing. And when you think about fellowship, I often think about even us this morning. You know, I hope we think about each other and we pray about for one another, you know, not just on Sundays, but throughout the week. We think about each other as a body because this is our church family here in this room. I know there's some people missing today, but <clears throat> this is our church family and we need to continue fighting for one another through prayer, through fellowship. And all of these tools, the word of God, the power and the person of the Holy Spirit, prayer, fellowship within the body, all of these tools allow us to seek the face of God and to keep us walking that straight and narrow path. That way, as James tells us, we can submit to God, we can resist the devil, and then he can flee from us. And that way we can stop playing that blame game whenever we find ourselves in sin, and we can take responsibility for our lives in Jesus Christ. Because Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 15 through 16, wherever we go, we want to leave behind that beautiful fragrance, that fragrance of Jesus Christ. And I don't know what your favorite smell is. Maybe it's Lysol. I don't know. Maybe it's Justin Bieber's new cologne. I don't know. Um, he makes cologne, I think, right? Whatever. Um, but that smell, that fragrance of Jesus Christ, that gospel message, that's what we want to leave behind. We also want to vocalize it too. But in order for that to happen, we need to submit to God. We need to allow the Lord to shape us and mold us. We need to remove ourselves from those opportunities to sin because those desires, like I said, are going to be there. So as we leave this morning... As we go about our day and this week, let's stop playing that blame game and take responsibility for sin in our lives, for the things in our lives that we can allow the Lord to take over. And because Jesus is coming back very quickly, we want to be on guard. We want to be doing the work of the Lord. And I'll close with this from Revelation chapter 22, verse 12. I love this. The Lord testifying, and behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. Amen. Well, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this time, Lord God. We thank you for the people you brought here this morning. We thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you that in you we have a hope, we have a future, Lord. We pray that you continue to give us the desire to sin less, Lord God, to take responsibility, Lord, for the lives that we have in you. And we pray, Lord God, that you continue to shape us and to mold us into the likeness of your son, Jesus. We pray for Fresh Vision Church and all of its people, all the people that come here, Lord God, all of those that will be coming here, all the churches across the world, Lord God, that are doing your work. We thank you so much. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.